Welcome to Jesse War Radio. Jesse War Radio is available from jessiewar.com. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jessiewar and follow us on Twitter at jessiewar. All one word. Thank you for tuning in. Sue McDougall is an artist based in Hastings in southern England. She works in a variety of media, including paint, resin, plastics, fabric, and paper mache, and has been influenced by artists who have chosen to work in unconventional and abject materials. We begin with a discussion of Sue's work. What's going on currently with your work? Well, currently, I've, I've got, I'm trying to juggle a whole load of things. I've got the big thing that I've got is getting into the Broomhill finals, the, the sculpture competition. So I'm trying to actually get my sculpture made. And that's got to be installed by May the 31st, which is quite a, you know, it's a big deadline. So I hope that will be all right. I've got my floating sculptures. And I had a, a show up in London just recently. And I've just arranged to have those showing at Project 78 Gallery in, in St. Leonard's. And so I've got to do some adjustments on those because although the first show with them was a success, I want to make them, I want to make them different. And then there's the Eastbourne Pier Sculpture Competition. And I'm down to the finals in that and um, working with Caroline. And so we've got to make a maquette. And so I did a drawing before, but actually getting the maquette is throwing up all kinds of technical problems. So I'm always feeling as if I'm doing the wrong thing. What kind of technical problems? And is that the maquette of the uh, bird flight uh, paths? No, the, the, well, no, I've done the maquette of the bird flight paths. Right. That's, for, that's for Broom Hill. Um, no, the one that, that there are technical problems on is the is the maquette for Eastbourne Pier because the idea was that it commemorates the fire on Eastbourne Pier and it had to incorporate elements of the burnt out pier. So we had a a girder in the middle and burnt sort of wood round the centre and then again acrylic rods which I rather like up round the the perimeter and these actually represent both the flames and the amusement arcade where the fire started but the bit that's actually proving quite tricky is on the top there is a bird and I called it a phoenix I don't know that it looks exactly like a phoenix but then nobody's actually seen a phoenix so they can't say it doesn't but it has this huge tail which looks like a plume of smoke which I saw looking like well it was going to be made out of acrylic but there's a question of layering the acrylic sections and we're having to get that done for the maquette and then you start finding how many layers of acrylic you're actually going to need. And um, with them, it's a weather vane. So with a wet weather vane, it's got to balance absolutely. And so one starts getting into the engineering issues straight away about how heavy the, the tail will be and how heavy the body of the bird will be. And that's really got to be done quite quickly as well. And what, um, what is Caroline doing and what are you doing? What are, what are your roles in the creation process? Well, we went, and looked at, we went and looked at the site 
together and we discussed it and we discussed various ideas. Uh, I came up with the with the drawing and we're trying to actually sort of source together the fabricators because this is not something that we actually see ourselves it's not something we could make ourselves so Caroline has found a blacksmith that will make, be able to make the metal elements and I'm working with a fabricator fiber sports who we hope is going to be able to make the tail and I think they will I mean they're being very very helpful that's really exciting and we're just we're discussing Caroline Pick uh, yes for people's yes reference. Uh, yes who's an artist based in where does she live again she lives in Lewis 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 right Okay. Lewis near Brighton. Yeah. So, um, and so what, uh, what, tell us about um, some of your, um, the exhibitions that you've done and what the response was. Just trying to think it, everything starts becoming a bit of a blur. I won the, the Hackney Road Sculpture Prize. That was really, that was very exciting. Excellent. But yeah. that was not so much, that was not so much an exhibition. That was again for a design. And the idea for that was that it had to be about regeneration. I put in, an, you're allowed to put in three designs, but the one that they chose was probably the one I liked the best, which again used acrylic rods. And I really like these rods because when the sun shines through them, they absolutely glow. I think they're, it's a wonderful material. And I had these set in a sort of random manner and the judges like that. And the idea is with that, that it's going to be the centerpiece of a development that's happening in Hackney. But it hasn't actually been made yet. We're having to wait for the development to be constructed and then they will come back to me. So that particular project's on hold. It sounds, that so sounds really exciting though. It is extremely exciting. I mean, I just love the idea of having one of my works actually there in the you know in the in the center of the city that that is is far more important than the prize so the prize was nice but apart from that i've been working on the floating sculptures which i don't think you saw them because i did these at the first year of the ma yeah i i've seen pictures of them and they're definitely very strong pieces yeah they're what I've been trying to do with them is make the first ones I made were you I used balloons inside. They had foil balloons. The problem with them was that they didn't have very much lift. I've tried larger balloons this time. I bought four foot cloudbuster balloons, which have a 1.7 kilo lift. And this has enabled me to use some polyester tissue which is sold it's amazing the things that you can find on the internet this is sold for people that make model airplanes and it's really quite tough and it's very very light and so i've made the outside sort of shell of them which will be reusable the issue with them is getting them to float for long enough and i've used some stuff called high float but there are still sort of there are kind of difficulties with that at the moment in getting them to float for long enough. So I'm experimenting both with the way that you put the high float in, with the way that you seal up the balloons. And I'm also looking 
so in case you know anybody that would like this, for a much larger space where I could actually have sort of dirigibles where they'd be actually eight foot big. And then I could have them made out of a, a plastic material. There's a plastic material, the kind of thing that is used for airships. And you can buy mini ones. Now, the huge advantage of these is that you can just pump them up and top them up if they need more helium, and they, could, they would float for weeks. But of course, you need a very large space and actually possibly quite a lot of money to make this work because the helium is quite expensive. But I just think that they'd be so cool to have indoors these huge eight-foot floating sculptures. So I'm sort of wondering about where I might be able to do that. Are they are they um the same thing as those you know those blimps that like car dealerships will use, and what are those blimps filled with? You know, they'd be filled with helium. Really? If they're floating, if they're floating up in the sky, it's got to be helium. Yeah, but they would have to um refill those every day, right? No, you don't have to refill them every day. You'd they they, they last. I mean, the, the plastic is strong enough to contain the helium, but. If they started to, to go down, you could retop them. It's with, if you use, um, what's the stuff called? The, this thing that ordinary balloons are made, latex. The problem with latex is they'll, they'll, you can inflate them, but latex isn't particularly good for helium because the helium molecule is so small that it goes out of it. And so that's why you try and, fill the inside with another material, this high float stuff, which gives a sort of plastic coating to the inside. But it's rather hit, hit and miss, I found, which is why I'd like to scale up and use the dirigibles. But then I need a really large space to put them in and probably sponsorship because I, I imagine each one would take several hundred pounds of, of helium. Yeah, and you'd be able to design the actual balloon shape, though? No, the shape, isn't, the shape isn't important because you just need the lift. The shape comes from the, from the outside, which is made of this sort of paper stuff. And filler, you can put in things like bubble wrap or just the shape of the, of the, of the tissue forms its own shape. But you need the and you you. You need your lift to keep them in the air. So the dirigible itself would be just sort of loss in shape, but the shape of the thing would be different. I don't know. Is it difficult to explain? Can you picture it? So it's yeah. the core. Yeah, and um, what, what do they represent to you? What, do they represent anything fi uh, finite or describable to you? What are they? Yes, I mean... the. Like a lot of my art, it's my way of coming to terms really with mortality. The idea is that they're, they're beings, they're disembodied beings. And it's, it's really about the afterlife. I mean, people have different views of the afterlife. Some people say it's like heaven. Some people feel it's just a continuing consciousness. Now, I don't actually believe myself that it exists. I think when we're dead, unfortunately, we're probably dead. And I find that hard to come to terms with. So these things are 
portraying these conscious beings that are floating around in the ether. And it's, I think of them in my mind as, as nostalgia for the body because they're thinking about the life that they've led, but they can't do anything. They can remember and they can think, but they can't feel the sun on their back and they can't have a good meal and they can, they don't have any agency. They can't touch another person. And so there's a general discontent just in being conscious. And so, it, so the point of them is partly to convince myself that mortality is actually all for the best. And that after a couple of thousand years of just being conscious, but not being able to do anything, we'd all get very fed up with it. Mm. Yeah. And uh, now is the, is the bird path sculpture, uh, is that a departure I, from this theme or is it a continuation somehow of this theme of mortality? That's what it, struck it me is, when I saw it. You know. It is because the idea of that one, is that in the air, the air above the spot at Broomhill where it will be placed or wherever it were placed, would have been much the same, you know, for millions of years. You know, it, it is air. And through that air, things will have flown. Insects, birds, going back in time, pterodactyls. And it was thinking of the path, the crisscrossing paths of all these things that will have flown in any one small area of air. And it, to me, it puts our own lives in context that these things have been happening you know, back through the eons. So, so that's what that one's about. But it, it does seem to be um, perhaps more sort of optimistic. Uh, is it more optimistic? And does this also have anything to do with your sister's passing away? I think all my, to some extent, I think all my work is optimistic because, for instance, the, the, floating, the floating works are quite humorous. I mean, people, people enjoy interacting with them. So I don't see it as being gloomy. I don't know that Flight Path is about, is about my sister at all, actually. I mean, maybe within my own personal philosophy, there is something about that. I think, I always sort of think that we're here. And the very fact that we're here shows that we're possible, that impossible things tend to happen again. So without in any way believing in reincarnation, which I don't, I do wonder whether we're being is just part of a cycle that universes happen all the time, that, in, that there's not just one universe, there's an infinite number of universes. And so possible things will happen again and again and again, and we may exist in different forms. And so perhaps with the flight paths, there are lots of flight paths. And yes, you can see it like that. You know, maybe my sister will happen again because she was certainly possible. And so, as I say, anything that possible is possible tends not to happen just once. So what is being then? Is, is there anything that differentiates being from existence in other words like a drop of water exists and perhaps in its own right but is there any difference between a drop of water and an animal or a human being well there's consciousness and, and i find the whole study of consciousness extraordinarily fascinating and one can play various mind games about it and one 
mind game, which I think is, is really interesting, is to think, if I couldn't remember anything from this point onwards, I can, would I still be me? And I think one finds that one feels one would, you know, that, that one's essence, one's being, one's consciousness doesn't actually depend on memory. And then you start thinking, well, what does it depend on? Does that mean that there's an X factor involved in consciousness that does, that is not existent in a, in a, an inanimate object? Well, it's very difficult to define what consciousness is. If I ask you, are you conscious? You'll say, obviously, yes. And you keep on in thinking about your consciousness somehow makes you more conscious. I mean, there are various experiments that can be shown that we're not as conscious as we think we are, that the things that we see, we don't really see, that there are blind spots that we're not aware of. But we, but we feel extremely conscious. We cannot, the drop of water clearly is not. Then there comes the question whether an inanimate object could be. Well, that's where one starts getting into whether artificial intelligence can be conscious or not. And we don't really know about that. I don't know. What do you think? Do you, do you think? Do you think artificial intelligence can possibly be conscious? I mean, that's the question of our times, isn't it? Um, I mean, I've thought about it. I think that I actually tend to think it's impossible, to be honest. Um, I think it's creating a golem, and uh, I think that I, I do believe in magic. So I guess anything's possible. But you believe in that? You yeah. believe in magic? Oh, yeah. I wholeheartedly believe in magic. I don't believe in charlatanism. I don't believe in hokum. But I do believe that there is real magic. Yes. Do you? Um, I tend to think that magic is stuff that we can't explain. But right. that doesn't... It depends how you define magic. And what do you see as being magic? Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, it is something that we just can't comprehend. But I think that our mind will never encompass the universe or God, so to speak. So I don't think that, well, I don't think that magic could ever be uh, extinguished. I tend to, I suppose I probably tend not to believe in magic, but I think there are a lot of things we don't understand. So I think there's probably a rational explanation, except when you look at what people say about quantum mechanics, which I don't pretend to understand at all. That seems so impossible. But we know that what is described happens. So perhaps that's just another way of talking about magic. Right. What, what, what seems impossible about quantum mechanics? Well, I don't think I'm really a person that can say that put, can put succinctly and accurately because I don't know enough about it. But the electrons are influencing each other at a distance, which I believe happens, about things happening according to whether they're being observed or not. I mean, all this seems definitely improbable, but we know it happens. It, could quantum mechanics just be called hyper-relativity? I don't know. I think I think one needs to be you need to be talking to a physicist about this. Yeah, yeah. It well, it just seems like a twentieth century concoction to me, uh, quantum mechanics. So I've never really paid that much attention to it because it just seems like a product of 
Einsteinian, uh, what I would consider actually hokum. Well, I think one needs to be able to do the math. I think one needs to be able to do the math, and, and I most certainly can't. I can, <laughs> yeah, a very creative I can math. Read a, yeah. I can read about it and feel as if I understand it to some extent while I'm reading it, but I can't accurately describe what I've just read. So getting back to your art and your experience, it seems to me what I've seen of your work uh, since we graduated, and we, we just graduated not even a year ago from University yeah. of Brighton. We were in school together. And yes. it seems like you're really on a positive, uh, uh, what's the word, campaign, you know? And, and what, what has anything in, inside of you and your, and your outlook, we've already gone through this to an extent, but has it changed so that you're feeling more positive? Uh, or is it just that you've, you feel like you're building on your experience? I feel I've got to get on with things. I mean, I think, I think that's a real driver for me. I mean, this is a fourth career for me, and I feel impatient, and I just want to get on with it. That's good, and, yeah. And so I try to. And there, there, actually, when talking about the work earlier, I omitted one of the actual main areas that I'm interested, which is the sort of non-rectangular. I'm very interested in the boundary between sculpture and painting. Oh. And I've been doing quite a lot of experimentation with pieces that are modular, that will fit together. And they could either be wall-based, as they were with the final show that I did mm -hmm. for the MA. Or you can take the same pieces down, and they'll be self-standing and form a sculpture. Oh, right. And when I was doing the work, on, and they seemed to me to have quite a bit of potential. When I was doing the work for the MA, I was working mainly in papier-mâché, which I, which I like. I like very much as a material, but it does have limitations and it's not particularly durable. And I've now been experimenting with both jesmonite and fiberglass. And I think that's got real potential. So I'm working with some of those pieces that I did before and I've got them now propped up in the studio, actually as sculptures. And I'm working on ways of making them tougher has anybody done um, that has anybody set a precedent for that type of thing uh where a wall hanging could double as a floor sculpture i don't know of anybody but every time one thinks one's doing something you find that in fact that nobody else is doing you find that there are half a dozen or more people that are and there are certainly people that have used works that have various elements that fit together as sculptures. I mean, that is, that is not new. Um, I was looking at some, some work by an artist, and I'm trying to remember his first name. Ailing is his second name, which was at the Project 78 gallery, where my work's going to be showing from the 1st of April. And his works fitted, fitted together. And in fact, um, Patrick Jones, who, who runs that gallery, you know, brought me in to see them because he knew I was interested in works fitting, fitting together. Neil Ailing, I think it is. But I don't think he had intended the same works to be wall-based. And 
I quite like the idea of giving people freedom about how they're arranged, that I'm not saying these particular components must be arranged like this, but rather they can be arranged like this. But if you want to put them differently, that is up to you. Yeah, that sounds like a very fresh idea, actually. Um, What popped into my mind was I just went up up to the Dali Museum, and Dali definitely kind of, you know, bridges the gap between furniture and art and paintings and everything else, you know, so that might be one reference. What, What part do competitions play, and how do you find out about the competitions that you've been entering? And successfully and winning. That's really impressive. <laughs> and then uh, how do you find out about them? Uh, how, what about what were the contacts you had or whatever to um, get into this um, gallery that you're going to be exhibiting at? Well, first of all, the competitions. I look on art websites like Retitle and ArtQuest. And I think that the, Haste, the Eastbourne Pier one was put out by Fabrica. So... There are various artist websites that list these competitions. And it was really making a decision, and that was partly about what my thesis was about, about the fact that women artists tend not to be as successful as male artists. They they get, get into fewer galleries. There are just, they get lower prices. And I was looking at all the factors why that might be the case. And one of the factors was definitely that women tend not to put themselves forward so much. Mm. And so I made a resolution that if there was anything that I could enter, that where I had the skills to enter, I would enter, irrespective of whether I thought I had had a chance. And that's quite a lot of work because obviously you have to, you do go and put in for quite a few things that you don't get. But the more you put in for, the more chance you have. And so that is actually just, just an active decision that generally when women tend to not have the confidence and just to try and ignore that part. And so that, that's why I've been entering lots of competitions. Do you feel that that opens up the potential to be a token or tokenize yourself? at all and uh, how would that make you feel if that were the case what that i i get something because i'm a, a woman right right is that what you're is well, that what yeah you're, uh, you brought you brought up the topic of gender so i'm just continuing with continuing with it yeah. no i think i don't i don't think that happens actually i think what what i'm saying is that there are a whole load of issues that tend to make women do less well and more women go to art school than men, but more men tend to get into galleries. I think to some extent that's, that's changing. And there are loads of reasons why. It isn't just that there's prejudice, although that can have a part. It can partly be that women are, have less time, that they've got more caring duties, whether it's elderly parents or their children, they tend to have less money, so they possibly tend to have less good materials. They tend to have less self-confidence. They possibly suffer from actually the feeling that they're less good because that goes into 
the sort of history of art. And I mean, it can be shown that, I mean, the human mind is extremely suggestible. If you put a load of candidates down for a maths exam, it has been shown that if you ask them to put their gender at the top, just register their gender at the beginning of the test, women tend to do less well. And that is because men are traditionally better at maths. And it's called stereotype disadvantage. And the reason it's thought is that they are feeling, they are reminded that they're women, they're reminded that women do less well, and they're therefore having to combat that thought during the test. Now, that is a very artificial situation. But when you've got life doing that to you generally, it might have an effect. And then you do get a little bit of prejudice, some conscious, an awful lot unconscious. So there's no one factor. The only thing that one can do is actually really try and sort of push oneself to try and ignore as many of these as possible. And for instance, buy good materials, even though they're expensive, enter things, even though you think you don't have a chance, and do it fairly systematically. Um, there was actually a piece at the, um, at the same time we had our Masters of Fine Art exhibition at the University of Brighton uh, in July 2015, last year. There was a piece by, I think she was an undergraduate, on the wall outside of the gallery. And it was all about that subject of women being discriminated against by the art industry. Um, and that why are there so many art female art students, but there's so few female artists being exhibited. It wasn't a very good piece. It was rather offensive looking, and I don't think it was really had much artistic merit. I, I don't know. Uh, I think personally, I'm just very much opposed to any kind of tokenization. As a white male, I find, I find that actually the tables have turned, and uh, that white males are essentially becoming the victims. Uh, of all the discrimination that's sort of just the natural result of uh, affirmative action and the cultivation of affirmative action over decades well i don't know that i think that but i do know other men that feel that to be the case i think what happens i think the best result for everybody is where there's i mean one doesn't there's a sort of gender blindness Right, right. I agree. That competitions are better if the judging panel don't know too much about the people that they're judging. What do you think about a judging panel not knowing the names or the genders or the race or anything about the people? That's best. I think so too. I think you have a good point. Yeah. I mean, the people that do this um, in an exactly absolutely exemplary fashion at the national the national portrait prize you cannot have anything on the front of your portrait that you put forward that lets the judges know what gender you are That's so no names yeah. now with orchestras in audition when there are auditions for orchestras it has been shown that when the judges cannot see who they're judging they take on more women. They're still not equal in orchestras. They're still not 50-50, but there are more than there were through the judges just listening to the music rather than seeing who's playing it. And I think, that, you know, that, and that's great because then nobody 
can feel that they've been discriminated against, whether they're a white male who feels that he, he is being overlooked because the judges want to get sort of more women or more minorities in, or if you're a woman or if you're a person of colour, if it's completely blind, you're on a level playing field. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good. And then what about with the competitions that you've been entering? Do they charge money for the entry? They do. Um, usually not terribly much. I sort of, it tends to be around the 20, 20 pound sort of level, which is fine. I decided not to go in for the, the summer exhibition at the Royal Academy this year because that goes up to 50 pounds and really the odds are so bad. Right, they, right. You have something like 12,000 entries for that and that's not a terribly good odds. How many, uh, ex- how many paintings are exhibited or people are exhibited? I can't remember. It's in the hundreds. Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but not, I think... It's it's pretty bad, particularly as I think that the judges often know quite. I think quite a lot of the people that get accepted. I know of one case where a judge was suggesting to people that they entered. So I think the Royal Academy could probably clean up its act a bit. I think, like everything else in London, it's probably very nepotistic. <laughs> like the BBC and stuff like that. I think it, I think it might be. Um, anyway, I didn't think it was worth going in for this year. And what I do you think that. about the controversy with uh, artists not being paid? And how do you think that's going to develop over the, in the future? I think it's terrifically hard being a gallery owner. That if you think about being a gallery owner, a gallery is a sort of shop. And it's a kind of shop that is trying to make money and be true to a vision. And maybe nobody comes and buys anything, if it's a commercial gallery, for days at a time. And a huge number of galleries are set up and can't keep going. Then there are the sort of public galleries, things like the Brighton Museum, which you maybe is where the, the issue you're talking about has come from, where they will often have exhibitions where they're not particularly selling the stuff, they're just showing the stuff. And they may not pay the artist a fee. It's, how do I feel about that? Well, it'd be very nice to be paid a fee, but like many artists, of course, I would do it without a fee because one wants the exposure. And we don't have to do any of this. I'd hoped if I sell something and if a gallery has promoted me, I'm very happy with the gallery having their cut because I think they deserve it. And what about, what do you see the future of art sales in the art market uh, becoming? Because I know you have a blog. Do you want to mention your blog uh, just right now? We can mention again at the end of the interview. Um, yes. Well, the blog is, the blog is Artological, yeah. Artilogical.com. Art, art, a-R-T-E-L-O-G-I-C-A-L.com. And so yes. you, you do pay attention to this stuff, I think. So uh, how do you see uh, art, the art market, the art industry, art sales 
developing with the internet. To me, what I actually put forth in class uh, to Charlie Hooker and, and to maybe some of the students was that I think that um, it's increasingly going to become virtualized and become online. Uh, and that I think that that could actually affect galleries and even museums. So what do you think about that? I, I think it depends. I think it's the price level. If I were going to buy, spend a reasonable amount of money on a painting, I would like to see it. So if I were, for instance, if I were a collector, I would definitely want to see something before I handed over, you know, several thousand pounds. That's a good point. If I were just furnishing a rented flat and I wanted something pretty to put above the sofa, then I might very well be content to buy something online. And so, but I think it's more likely to be integrated that suppose I'm the collector and I am prepared to pay something over 10,000. I might do the research of what I wanted to buy online and then actually ask to go and look at it in person. So I, do th I think there's always going to be a need to, to actually see the physical thing. It seems to look very different. Well, if you, if you look at, yeah, if you look at, um, for example, Saatchi Online, right? Uh, if, you upload yes. a, if you upload a painting to Saatchi Online, there are two things you can do. You can, um, you can zoom in on it so you can see the details, I'm pretty sure. And most, most of these art sales websites can do that. And then I, mean, I actually can do that on my website. You can like zoom into my paintings and see them, the close-up brush strokes or whatever. And then um, the other thing that Saatchi Online and other uh, art sales websites can do is they allow you to um, see the size of the painting in a room. So it, it, you can see the size of how big the painting is going to be over like a sofa. And I think as that, as that virtual reality technology increases, you're actually going to be able to inspect art uh, in a three-dimensional way online to, to most people's satisfaction. Do you know what I mean? So I think I it could continue that way. Would still, it would still depend on the price level. As I say, if it was probably the kind of amount of money that I'm ever likely to spend, I might well do it like that. But if I was somebody who was quite serious about building up a collection, I would want to know just more and see them. And I think some, some galleries make that, online galleries make that possible. I and mean, I've been meaning to get my stuff on degree art for some time, but I know that they will, they also have premises and they can also, people, can send in stuff and go and go and look at it. So that seems to me to be the ideal that that you identify stuff that you're interested in and that, and then see it. It's just it, it's also very difficult, I think, just judging. You can get a lot of indigestion sort of looking at online stuff in a way that doesn't quite happen for real galleries, though you can get pretty... Yeah, you're right, yeah. Yeah, in real life, you get overwhelmed by the art. 
in, in real life, you yes. get overwhelmed by it, but you don't necessarily have this. What That's a good description is indigestion. Yeah. You just get like tired of it. Just, it's just a bunch of pixels after a while online. Yeah. Um, and how, how do high end auctions work? Uh, do they, um, like, let's say they were auc- auctioning off of Van Gogh or something. Are they going to allow the, um, the bidders to see the piece beforehand? Is that how it works? Well, yes. I mean, the piece, the piece will be a known piece. So people will have seen it in museums, possibly, or will know about the artist. And it will actually be present during the auction. So if they turn up at the auction, there it is. Right. I mean, some people will phone. Some people will know that they want to have their own real copy of sunflowers, for instance, and don't need to see it because they know what it's like anyway. So it depends whether they're buying on the name. And, that, and it is, that is somewhat different when you're buying an example of a known artist's work, that you're buying partly the cachet or the pleasure of having a work by that artist. But if you're buying work from an artist that you've never seen their work before, I think seeing it can make a huge difference. And I think we've all seen works that look very different from the photograph. I remember particularly one that I saw in the first year of my FDA at Sussex Coast College. There was, there was a, a student there who wasn't particularly interested in art. She wanted to get on another course. And she was pushed to do some work. And about, it, I think the title of the, the assignment was you had to do something about herself and she came from Yorkshire. And she did these little Yorkshire puddings with sort of Union Jacks or something. I can't remember exactly what they were like, but I thought they were pretty awful. <laughs> she, t- she took some photographs of them and they were transformed. Oh, they, really? looked, they looked completely excellent and they made a very, very good photograph. Now, if the art was a photograph, there was, they were absolutely fine and you'd, you knew what you were getting. If the art was the Yorkshire puddings and you thought you were buying Yorkshire pudding sculptures, I think you'd have been disappointed. So I think it's a difficult issue. But as I say, if there was a lot of money involved, I think I'd always want to see the real thing. Yeah, I think that's, you've made a good point. Yeah, that replication can never be completely verisimilar, right? Yeah. It's, and scale. Even though you can see with, with Saatchi, they put it over, the, they have a picture of it in the room, and you should be able to work out the scale, but often you're wrong. And I have seen pictures in exhibitions that have been shown on a poster. And then you go in and think, oh, is that it? That's usually, it's much smaller than you were expecting. I says occasionally it could be much bigger, but I think I think actually getting the scale of a thing from your screen and getting the colors right is hard. Yeah, I actually had that experience that you're talking about with the Mona Lisa, and it was actually larger than I'd thought it would be because people always say that it's smaller than they thought it was. How small it is. So when I saw yes. it, it's actually quite a bit larger than I thought it would be. <laughs> I thought it'd be the size of like a large postcard by the way they were describing it, but it's 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 a proper size painting. 
Um, it's just a proper size <laughs> um, And what about painting versus sculpture in terms of online art sales? And I don't mean to beat the issue to death, but uh, painting might be a little bit more suitable for uh, online uh, sales than sculpture, perhaps. Yes, I think so, because I think with sculpture, the desire to touch it is extremely strong. I mean, I think all sculptures make you want to touch them. And you can't know the extent that you want to touch them without having them there. And you also want to just go around and see whether it looks all right from from every angle. So, again, it depends. If you're wanting something that's, you've got a garden and they've got a some sort of alcove and you want something to sit in it and you see something pleasant for a few hundred pounds, you probably risk buying it online yeah if you're if you've got a lot more money you might think well let's make a trip and that can be quite pleasant in itself let's make a trip let's make a trip go and see this thing talk to the artist talk to the gallery and find out and so uh getting back to your art i'm trying to um make sure that we discuss your art um as much as we can uh so uh you've sort of gone over this but can first can you give us a brief summary of uh, your progress from last year to this year, and then can you uh, sort of extrapolate what you hope for the future? My word. Well, I've just, as I say, I have been pursuing these various strands, the modular paintings, the work with acrylic rods, the floating work, and there's also, which I haven't actually mentioned, the resin work, which is actually get, tends to go with the, the floating paint, with the floating work, which is, is more sort of collage. It's partly collage, partly acrylic, but I put a coat of resin over it. And I, I like the effect because often with collage, you're very conscious of the different layers. And I find that coating them with resin tends to make the thing one. So I'm intending to do more work along that line, along those lines. So probably that's that's something I intend to do more with in the future. And also this work that I'm is experimental at the moment with jesmonite and with fiberglass. And I've started a work that is in the studio at the moment that I'm quite excited by called Black Hole New Beginnings. And this came about because of a piece I read in New Scientist about people thinking that maybe from black holes may push matter out into a different dimension. And I just found that rather an exciting thought that you that stuff from our universe can possibly go out somewhere else entirely. So I'm trying to depict this and I've got the swirling black jesmonite and then I've got all the coloured stuff coming out on one side. And it all goes off. The, it's, this is a painting, but it all goes off the canvas because I like the fact that canvases need not just have hard rectangular edges. So that's something that I'm actually working on at the moment. And I think there's probably going to be possibly a series of those, but I'm just working on that at the moment. That's fantastic. And um, 
So is that bringing us into the future? What, what sort of thoughts, what sort of ideas are, do you have about uh, what you might be doing? Well, I think I'm going to keep on these four strands, the, the resin work, the floating sculptures, the works in acrylic, and the modular stuff. And I see this black hole's new beginning. Plus, it's actually that's the fifth one because it, it isn't modular. It, it's a standalone piece, but it's non-rectangular. So, yes, I'm interested in paintings that don't conform to the standard shape. So I see myself keeping all these all these streams going in parallel <coughs> for as long as I can until, you know, such a time that one of them possibly takes over or I get bored or I think of something new, which is quite possible as well. That sounds really good. So um, Sue McDougall, can you give us some information about how people can find out more about you and also uh, your website and blog? Right. Well, I've got a website called artilogical.com. So it's A-R-T-E-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. And if you Google that, it should come up. Now, on this website, I tend to write about other people. I write a bit about myself, but I tend to put my thoughts about exhibitions that I've visited. Linked to that is my own website, suemcdougall.com. And if you go to either suemcdougall.com or artilogical.com, they're linked. So if you go to Sue McDougall, you'll see on the top menu, Artological. If you go to Artological, it'll say paintings, sculptures, and about. And I'm also on Twitter. And what's your Twitter handle? <laughs> I, I suddenly realized you were going to ask me that. And I, let me see, what is my Twitter handle? Um, I think it's at Sue, at Sue underscore McDo, M-C-D-O. Thank you for listening to jessiewar.com. We hope that you have enjoyed this program and found it informative. Please like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash jessiewar and follow us on Twitter at jessiewar, all one word. Farewell.